Well, if you're new, uh, you're arriving partway through a journey through the book of Joshua. And uh, it's what we do in this church. We work generally, we work through books. We try to work through the book of the New Testament, a book of the Old Testament each year. We look at Christmas, we look at Easter, then we look at something practical. That, that's kind of our journey each year. And um, what that forces us to do is uh, to get into some really tough stuff rather than just look at the things that we tend to want to look at. And that means that we, we start to dig into parts of the Bible which are really uncomfortable for us. Uh, and I think the book of Joshua is one of those books. Um, it's a book which is written in its context. It's written for a particular people at a particular time. And yet it also carries the timeless message of God. It gives us an opportunity to understand what God is like. Uh, as God presents himself to the world. I think that's a really important idea to think about whenever you come to the Bible. It's to always remember that what God is about is reintroducing himself to humanity who've rejected him. There are times when God has to speak in a language which we feel profoundly uncomfortable with. Language of war, language of conflict, language of violence actually at times. But that's the language which was understood and spoken in the day where God was revealing himself to humanity at that moment in humanity's time. And God would not be hurt if he didn't speak in a voice which was understandable. But there is far, far more for us to understand as we work through this book. The section that we're looking at really culminates at the end, which is why we read those last few verses. And it, it's kind of, it's a statement. It's the, it's the success, the triumph, and the victory over the southern kingdom. It's, it's God's people who have been commanded to go into this land and to purge this land of the horrific ungodliness that is going on. I mentioned it pretty much most Sundays, and that's because we need to keep it in mind so that we don't start to view it only through 21st century eyes. What is going on in Canaan is horrific stuff. Child sacrifice is common in Canaan. And God is saying, go into that land and present, display, bear witness to a new kingdom. A kingdom which is marked by my righteousness. There are various mentions of slavery through this book. One of the interesting things is, God's people are called to go into these nations and to treat slaves in a radically different way than the world around. Now, we, we rightly feel really uncomfortable with the idea of slavery. But do you see what God is doing all the time? He's nudging us a little bit further along the line so that we might be more like him and less like our innate nature. That's an amazing thing. That's, that's maybe a little bit of an introduction. And uh, I guess we're, hit, we're now here. We're looking at the, the victory over the southern kingdom. I'm going to pray and then we can get going. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to turn to this particular part of your word and we pray that you would speak to us so that we might understand 
but more than understand. We pray that we might, you might speak to us so that our faith and trust in you might exist for the first time if it doesn't yet exist and might grow if we already trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sunday morning, December the 7th, 1941. If you're into war history, you will probably know that date. It's the date of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it brought the Americans into the Second World War. It was an incredible, audacious, horrific attack. In 1945, just a few years later, on August the 6th, the Enola Gay took off. And if you know the name of that plane, you will know that it was the first plane to drop the first atomic bomb in warfare. It was dropped on the city of Hiroshima. 9th of August, the second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. The result was utterly devastating. Utterly devastating. Horrific. Dreadful. Awful. Somebody has estimated that the deaths in Hiroshima are greater than the deaths in the whole of the book of Joshua. I find that quite an interesting thought. When we come to a particular part of the Bible which we think, this is scary stuff, this is incredible stuff. And yet, within just a lifetime, look at what humanity has reached. August the 14th, 1945, five days later, the Japanese surrendered, and the day is known as VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day. Most of you will have seen the incredible and spontaneous procession that marched, marched through New York. There's a really famous picture by a guy by the name of uh, Alfred Eisenstadt. It's a sailor kissing a nurse. Spontaneously. He'd be, he would be absolutely hammered, and rightly so, for doing that without permission now. But it says something about the time, doesn't it? And then a few minutes later, there was the incredible ticker tape celebration as the procession marched through uh, the financial district of New York. The celebration for victory was overwhelming. And I find that an amazing contrast. Victory and defeat is, is so polarizing, isn't it? Victory on the one hand, celebrations, joy, ticker tape pouring down out of the windows through Wall Street. And on the other side of the world, utter, ragged, horrific destruction. So polarized. But that's what victory brings. And that's the reality of victory in the face of bloody conflict. I guess one of the things that I find interesting in those kind of victories is that we look at them and we are, we are so desperate for that to be a real victory and a real success and for the outcome to be really worthy 
and yet so often it isn't. And time and time again, the victory is so short-lived because the victors prove themselves to be just so human again. If you follow on from the book of Joshua, you will find exactly that. You'll find that the victory that was celebrated as the southern kingdom triumphed, uh, was defeated, and, and God's righteousness was triumphed, is so short-lived. There is crisis in a very short time. And victory is never quite as perfect. And that's a really important question for us to ask as we come to this text. We are presented with victory. We are presented with success. But what does it really look like? And where does that take us in the Bible? Why is this here when it's showing victory over the enemy and yet it just doesn't seem to take us anywhere? I think, I think what we look at as we work through this text It gives us little hints of a journey that we are to be taken on. The first is this. Look at where it's located. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1. Now Adonai Zedek, king of where? Jerusalem. You know, if you're reading the Bible in the 21st century, that is really significant. In fact, if you're reading the Bible any time a few hundred years after this event, it's really significant. At this moment, it does not seem as significant to Joshua. But Jerusalem is to figure massively in the story of God with His people. And the narrator chooses to take this particular incident, this particular conflict, and to point us to this. He's almost saying to you and to me, I I want you to listen to this because this is how it worked out with Jerusalem. I know there were lots of other places and we've covered some of them, but Jerusalem is really significant. You need to understand what went on. Look at what happened. Uh, King of uh, Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its kings, and the people of Gibeon had made a treaty with Israel and become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to, and then it gives a whole list of kings. I love those lists of kings. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Almost, I think, pretty much most great epic dramas pick up on this idea of otherworldly names. Whether it's kind of strange names in Harry Potter, or Lord of the Rings, or Narnia, or Game of Thrones. It's these other, otherworldly kind of names which, which raise themselves up and become kind of figureheads and pictures of opposition. Who is going to win? And that's what the narrator is doing for us. He's raising up these these kings who stand alongside the king of Jerusalem and say, number one, we're going to defeat Gibeon because Gibeon have sided with Israel. And number two, we are going to protect ourselves because we will then defeat Israel. 
This is not going to happen. Not on our watch. That's the picture that is portrayed. And what is, what is, why is that important? Because in this, reminder ourselves again, because in this world, the whole of the way a nation succeeds or fails is written by the gods. The gods of Jerusalem, the gods of Jarmuth, the gods of Lachish, the gods of Eglon, the gods of every place are, are going to decide the outcome. It wasn't a case of whether we are militarily strong, although that was certainly part of it. It's the case of are the gods with us? If we take ourselves back to how God's people left Egypt and we read about the plagues, we see that all of the plagues are like they're emblems of the gods of Egypt. And God is saying, I will defeat the gods of Egypt and release the people. We might find that strange, but that is the world that this is portraying to us. And so the gods of these kings, along with the kings, stand against Joshua and the God of Joshua. And then we are poised for the question, who is going to triumph? In essence, whose God is the true God? But Jerusalem is massively significant because the place of Jerusalem has already been mentioned way back. It has previously been a place of blessing for Joshua's ancestor, Abraham. Melchizedek, king of Salem. If you read it back in Genesis, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, has already blessed Abraham. I find that just an amazing, almost spine-tingling little moment. It's like I'm going to throw in this little taster Way back there, Salem is inc uh, in incredibly important. Now Jerusalem becomes important. And we can see, trajectory-wise, Jerusalem is crucial for the rest of the story of God and the world. So that's the first thing we see. We get a foretaste that this story is preparing us for a place which is incredibly important. The second is this. And this is where it kind of gets personal. Gibeonites make an appeal. Look at what it says. Verse 5, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up position against Gibeon and attacked it. I think what it means there is by taking position against them, they put themselves in an, an attacking place. They kind of, they, they, they lay siege to Gibeon. Because the message comes from Gibeon to Israel to say, come and help us. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, do not abandon your servants, come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. That is, that is just fascinating. Because last week, what did we understand of the Gibeonites? By ruse and by deception, they aligned themselves with the God of Joshua. 
Isn't that fascinating? By ruse and deception, they align themselves with the God of Joshua. Now, at this point in time, they have a choice to make, don't they? They have a choice to make. They are now surrounded by the kings. They could turn around and they could say, actually, we only did that so that we would be safe. And now we're on your side, so let's all band together and let's get rid of these Israelites. But no, what they do is they say, we really truly have, we have aligned. And you have said that we're your servants, so the appeal now goes out, as your servants, come and save us. Do you know what? If there is one theme in the Bible, that shouts out for the rest of the story of the Bible. In fact, it shouts out for you and for me just about every day of our Christian experience. I am your servant. Please save me. That's it. That is at the heart of the Bible. And, and what's more, the reality is I'm probably more like a Gibeonite. I don't deserve to be in favor. I don't deserve to align myself with the God of the Bible. I don't, align, I don't deserve to be saved by Jesus. I am worthy only to be a servant, and yet I cry out, come and save me. Because right now, I am surrounded by spiritual opposition. I am fighting a bloody battle. And there are times when I think I will not win. Do you feel like that? Do you ever experience that? Do you ever think, can I make it through? Will I survive or am I going to be crushed? Because, you know, if the next experience is as bad as the last experience, I don't know whether I can still believe so please, come and save me. It's the language of saving, not the language of help, isn't it? Help says, I can do quite a lot on my own. <laughs> uh, and then just come and give me an extra little bit of help and I'll be fine. The reality of our Christian life is, it's not about help, it's about being saved. I, I need to be saved. I, I think that is actually quite liberating to be able to use that language. Because a whole load of the time, we get, we get the impression, we get the idea that our Christian faith is about how well we do. And the reality is, I'm a failure in my Christian journey. And I need saving again and again and again. Please come and save me. Please give me the kind of protection and support that I don't deserve, but only you can give. You see, the Gibeonites back then, they'd, they, they, there are moments, in, there are moments in, and, and events in life which are absolutely critical. And they'd made that decision to align themselves with the God of Israel and they are saying, we're going to follow through on it. I want to ask, what are some of the moments in your life down through the years that seem to have been so important. I, was, I grew up, 
part of my kind of teenage years were in the 1970s and the kind of whole punk explosion. It felt like it felt like the world was changing dramatically. It felt like the, the world was being turned upside down. The Sex Pistols exploded onto the screen and it, there was mayhem. It was carnage. Nothing was going to be the same again. There were a whole load of my friends in school who just... This was, this was hope. This was life. This was going to make sense of everything because at the moment, in the 1970s, it was grey and it was bad and it was bleak and this was the answer. Anarchy. Kick against the traces. I was watching a video, well, a, a film briefly the other night on Sky Arts. A, a kind of reunion concert by the Sex Pistols. John Lydon's at the front there looking like a complete idiot. And do you know what? He's surrounded by a whole load of middle-aged men who are reliving those experiences back there that they dreamed of, that they were going to change the world. And the world was never going to be the same again. And they're leaving that concert hall and going back to their ordinary lives. Because the decision that they made to change the world was not that real. But for the Gibeonites, it was that real. And when we believe in Jesus, it is that real. It is a dramatic change. It is life-changing. It is an experience unlike anything else. And it stands the test of time. And that's where the Gibeonites were. Come and save us. The answer is, unquestionably, Yahweh is the victor. The first thing that we see is hail. Well, actually, we see God instructing Joshua to go up and to, to take them. So Joshua, verse 7, so Joshua mar marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Coming together in that moment is, in the ancient world, the absolute clear understanding that the God of these people, who has already, they have already cut us down, but the God of these people is with them as well as the heavens open and hailstones rain down and kill them. It's kind of this combined picture which says, don't you believe that you've made a military mistake? You need to believe that the God of these people is the true God. I actually thought, hail? Killing people? Oh, sounds, sounds incredible. 1986, 14th of April in Bangladesh, there was a storm. 92 people were killed by hailstorms. 92 
people killed by hailstorms. They were the size of grapefruits, weighing around about a kilo each. Imagine being struck down by kilo-weight hailstones. That was the picture that was clearly imprinted on their minds. Secondly, we have this incredible incident of sunlight. Verse 12 to 14. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Do you see that? Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. That's a mind-blowing text, isn't it? Do you know the earth spins at a thousand miles an hour? If God stopped the world, <laughs> we would fly off at a thousand miles an hour into whichever wall. I don't know which direction it is. In fact, actually, the wall wouldn't be there because it would all kind of slide. It, would just, it was incredible. So what do we make of this? Because immediately our kind of 21st century Western reading of this says that this, this is a figure of speech. It's a way in which God is speaking. And, and besides anything, that the world doesn't even work the way they said it. Because they're talking about the sun coming up and God stopping the sun. And we all now know that it's the earth that turns and all of that kind of thing. I think the reality is that what the Bible presents to us is a conflict of our thinking. There are moments when we have to say, what is going on here? For me, I think there is a combination of an incredible moment where God brings success beyond their wildest imagination and at the same time, the direct intervention of God in the events of the cosmos. I think there was probably a slowing so that we don't slam into the mountainside. <laughs> And you think, well, that, that sounds just a bit incredible, really. That sounds a bit far-fetched. That God would do that. That God would intervene in that kind of way. That He would kind of stop the world for the sake of humanity. And besides anything, what does that do for us? How does that help us? Is God just doing kind of cosmic conjuring tricks? so that it can look really strong and powerful. And I want to just pause and say, let me just take you forward around about 1,500 years from this. Because if God showed His blessing by sunlight being extended, and a battle raging so that he could prove to be victorious. There is another extraordinary intervention in pretty much the same place, in Jerusalem actually, where God does the opposite. Where rather than sunlight, which is extended in the day, he brings darkness miraculously in the day. 
And for three hours, there is darkness in Jerusalem when there should be sunlight. And for three hours, a battle rages. A battle rages. We look at the battle that's going on for these light days, where, these hours where the light is so long. And it is absolutely nothing compared to the cosmic battle that is raging for three hours while the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is nailed to a cross and there is darkness over the land. Isn't that remarkable? If one says God is blessing with light, the other says God is blessing with darkness. He's blessing His people by cursing His Son. He's showing, I will bring you into the light by putting Him in the darkness. And it culminates from noon until three in the afternoon, Matthew chapter 27 says, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the most astounding words of Jesus. You see, if we have a problem with the idea that it might be possible for God to slow down the world and allow for a battle to extend longer, that is nothing compared to the Son of God making Himself present in the world and entering into human conflict against sin and battling for three hours in darkness nailed to a cross and finally declaring the most dramatic words that you would ever hear from the Son of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where the relationship between the Father and the Son seems to be ripped apart where he no longer calls him Father, which he has done repeatedly throughout his ministry, he says, my God, you've forsaken me. You see, if we've got a problem with just the simple idea of a little bit more sun, we have got way more of a conflict with the issue of God present in the world battling in that way. We have got way more of a problem. In fact, I would even say, do you know what, if, if you feel as though you want to understand Joshua as being just an extended figure of speech, I, I don't really mind, to be perfectly honest, comparatively speaking. What I really want us to see is that what happened 1,500 years later is the thing is reversed and Jesus is nailed to a cross. The Son of God is present in the world and He, he fights a greater battle. But you know what he says at the end? Tatalasty. It is finished. At the end of this, there is not defeat. There is triumph. There is victory. Tatalasty. It is finished. You know when that drop, bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, the war was over. The war was over. It kind of wasn't, 
because it took another few days for them to gain victory in Japan. But, but, but from that moment, it was over. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he exploded a much greater atom bomb on all of the forces that wield their power against the God of the Bible. And at that moment, he is able to say, almost with a declaration of victory, it's finished. It's over. It's done. You know, that changes all of our spiritual conflicts. It changes our spiritual conflict. We talked earlier about the fact that it, we're faced with challenge and difficulty. The reality is that we've won. Victory is won. In fact, victory is won in the one who actually dies on the cross so that John later on... What, what, does, what does a ticker tape celebration look like? It looks like eternity with Jesus where it will never be reversed, where it will never turn out to be not quite as good as we thought. And John says it is marked, it is marked by the image of Jesus on a cross. He says this, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Then later on it says in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. I love that as I look out we've got people from different tribes, languages, people and nation. And you know what? Jesus has purchased us if we believe in Him. And John looked up and he saw Jesus walking around but looking like He was slain. You see the paradox? How can that, how can that work? Because the imagery is really important. It says the victory is worked out by the death. You can't get the victory without the bloody conflict. But it's Jesus that's won it. So I'm looking and saying to you, our future is a great future. Our conflicts, our spiritual battles are temporary. Keep on fighting them. But don't feel as if the outcome is dependent on whether you're going to receive eternal riches if you have faith in Jesus. You might find that you fail. You might find that you cut down. You might find as though you're flat on your face. And you know what? Jesus has still won the victory. And there's going to come a day when we're all going to see it and we're going to rejoice and it's going to be an eternal ticker tape celebration. That's, that is the joy. That is the hope of the Christian faith. That is we, why we believe in a Jesus who died and lived. So that when I die, I will live. When you die, you will live. Because the reality is if if this is all it is, we might as well give up now. But Jesus portrays something way better. And he says, in my death you will live if you trust in me.